Welcome to Growth Mindset University. I'm your host, Jordan Paris, and this show is all about learning the lessons we should have learned in school but did not, so that we can succeed in the progressive new age of business and life we find ourselves in today. Each episode will feature a brand new lesson, and now it's time for today's lesson. So put your thinking cap on, because school is now in session. Today's guest is David Burkus, and let me tell you, this one is an instant classic. One of my most favorite conversations in recent memory on the podcast, because we talked about networking, one of my favorite topics. And David Burkus is, in my opinion, one of the world's foremost experts on this topic. We discussed how to network without having to introduce yourself to random strangers at cocktail parties and networking events. We talked about alternatives to the dreaded question, what do you do? Questions that you can ask instead of that to strike up a conversation. We discussed how our friends could potentially make us fat. Yes, this is for real. We talked about why it's important to make introductions from one person in your network to another and how you can avoid awkward introductions where the person you're introducing to someone else doesn't actually want to be introduced to that person. Uh, David has a couple of stories there uh, where things just did not go right. Uh, And I get this all the time too, where I'm being looped into an email introduction, uh, being introduced to somebody. And I'm like, wait a minute, what, why am I being introduced to this person? And now I have to do a favor for somebody else. And there's an antidote to that. You're going to find out in this interview. And the best thing that I got from this is how to reconnect and re-engage with loose ties. I know we talked about this with Jordan Harbinger, but David has a perfect three-line way to reach out. Like I said, it's only three lines and I have been using it at least five times every single day since this interview uh, was recorded over a month ago. So I'm almost a little bit worried now that this interview is coming out that my uh, that, that, that my strategy is going to be uh, exposed here. But regardless, it is so amazing. The results of using David's three-line message have been so incredible and game-changing for my network. So without further ado, let's get into this interview with the one and only David Burkus. My guest today is David Burkus. David is a best-selling author, sought-after keynote speaker, and associate professor of leadership and innovation. His newest book, Friend of a Friend, offers readers a new perspective on how to grow their networks and build key connections, one based on the science of human behavior, not rote networking advice. He's delivered keynotes to the leaders of Fortune 500 companies and the future leaders of the United States Naval Academy. His TED Talk has been viewed over 2 million times. I highly recommend the TED Talk. Just look up David Burkus TED Talk. It'll come right up. It's been viewed over 2 million times. And he's a regular contributor to Harvard Business Review. David Burkus, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. Thanks so much for having me on. Excellent. So the book 
that we highlighted in the intro, Friend of a Friend, highly recommend it. It's, a, it's an interesting title and an interesting uh, interesting cover, too. <laughs> <laughs> it just says Friend of a Friend, Friend of a Friend, Friend of a Friend. Oh, you know? no, I, lo- I, I, I love it. I had nothing to do with it, so I can brag on it for a while. I believe there are 16 occurrences of the word friend because it's just this continuous stream. But it's a great way of textually highlighting, like, the main thesis of the book, which is that, like, it's not about your network, it's about the whole network. And if you're willing to go friend of a friend of a friend of a friend out there enough, we've got one big network on this planet. 7.7, I think, the last time I looked it up, people and counting, and they're all sort of interconnected through enough mutual friends or future friends. Uh, and really, that's that's the approach that I, th- I advocate for in, in networking as a whole. It's not about your network and what contacts are on your phone. It's about understanding the whole network around you and then navigating that network accordingly. Absolutely. And this is, uh, listeners know, this is one of my favorite things to talk about. Networking. I, I talk about how to build a world-class network in record time. I give presentations on that. It's a lot of fun. Uh, davidberkus.com. I didn't finish that. So friend of a friend and davidberkus.com because David's going to say some things today that you really like, things that make you very curious and you're going to want to learn more about him. So friend of a friend and davidberkus.com. Check him out when you get curious. And uh, so David, I'm excited to get to it today. How do how do we arrive at networking? Was this always, I imagine this isn't, wasn't always a, your topic of uh, expertise, was it? No. Um, not really. So, you know, it's a weird kind of rabbit trail. I, I look at myself as um, as a social science writer, as a, as a business writer. The, the fancy thing I try, I'm trying to make work not suck, right? In all of every book that I write, I'm trying to look at some aspect of our working lives and make it better, um, either that we work smarter or that we enjoy it more or what have you. And so my first book was actually about creativity. And one of the big misconceptions about creativity is that it's a solo endeavor. So we had a lot of research in there from the world of network science and also from the world of how people interact and, and collaborate and that kind of stuff. And that sort of started and piqued my interest in, um, in network science as a field of study and in that kind of people piece. The second book was Under New Management. That was about organizations as a whole. Just what is the the current research and what are the current practices in, in managing and leading organizations? And for a lot of them, a lot of them are seen as like trends. You know, for example, unlimited vacation or this whole idea of no managers. And so we really tried to pinpoint where does the science actually come down on these things? Good idea, bad idea. And again, to do that, because when you study organizations, you end up studying networks, I found myself reading all of these network science articles. And so that kind of started this weird, you know, Alice in Wonderland down chasing down this rabbit trail um, thing around network science. And eventually that's when it kind of hit me that like, there's a, there's a, a bigger book here too, because a lot of when you read networking advice that's out there right now, a lot of it is, is quite frankly, is autobiographical. It's a great story. It's a great example of how one person did it. And if you're similar to that person, it's great advice. But if you're different from that person, if you're a different gender or a different personality, if you're in a different culture or a different industry, how much of that advice actually applies to you is, is up for debate. So I started thinking, how do we know what's universally true about all networks? What, what, regardless of culture and what have you, what do we know about every network, every connection, every group of people? Yes, totally. And that's, that's where you dive into the world of network science, right? So that was the big idea. If we teach people how networks work through the people that study all of these networks and what the elements that are, are fundamentally true about all networks, how they operate, et cetera, then we can teach people, okay, it's not about you and growing your connections. It's about understanding this community that you're in 
using these principles of network science, and then we can move forward in that regard. What is fundamentally true about networks that people must understand to build a great network? What, what is like the bare minimum to understand here? Yeah, I mean, so there is, there's 10 main kind of core ideas in the book around how networks operate. So you're, you're giving me free reign of 10 to pick whichever one I want to start with. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I think the first one is, um, if we think about networks as individuals, like, so if you are still having that egocentric approach and thinking about your own level of connections, you've probably figured out that not everybody has the same amount of connections, right? There's a phenomenon in network science known as the super connector phenomenon. It's the idea that if you were to graph the number of connections in a network, whether this is one organization or the entire world, that graph would look more like a power law than a normal distribution. Those are two fancy nerdy terms. A power law is a graph that represents the 80-20 principle. 20% of the people have 80% of the connections, right? And a normal distribution is that inverted U that we all look at. When we look at like SAT scores or IQ scores, they follow that normal distribution. Networks don't work that way. A certain group of people have a disproportionate number of connections. What I think is interesting is not that, right? Because that's just bad news, if you think about it. Like if you're on the outside of that, that's just bad news. What's interesting is how we got that way. How did these people grow to be those connect, grow to get all of those connections? And that comes from a principle known as preferential attachment, that small little differences in the number of connections. Let's say we started a community, right? And everybody in that community knows about four other people inside the community on average. But in reality, one person knows six and a lot of other people know one and two. And that's how we get to, I don't know how many you need to know one and two to take six down to four, but you follow me. That person that has more connections, as new people enter the community, the likelihood that they will eventually meet that person goes up because quite it's quite natural. We get to know new people through the existing connections that we have. So the person with even the smallest difference in connection, it compounds and grows and that separation grows over time. Now, what I love about preferential attachment is it actually um, hints at it. It explains to me one of the most frustrating things that I hear those autobiographical network advice people say, right? They'll say things like the key to a great network is subtraction, not addition. That's a direct quote from one of my friends and power networkers, Jason Gaynard. And it drives me nuts because when you know 10,000 people, yes, the key to a great network is subtraction, not addition. But when you know 100 people, you're not there yet. What's going on in Jason's life that's not going on in most people's is that preferential attachment. He's just naturally through his existing connections, organically meeting lots of new people. And so being choosy about who he's spending time with becomes hugely important. Now, why do I say all of this? Well, I, I love your idea of how to grow a, a world-class network in, in record time. And I love that last word, time, right? You can speed it up or, or, or not, but it still takes time. Some things take time to compound and you lay the seeds for them and you eventually harvest that later. And I think a lot of people start on this networking thing. They get involved. They try and figure out, oh, I need to grow the number of connections. I need to meet more people in this industry. And then they get super frustrated because it looks like a few key people hold all of the connections and they're never going to get it. Well, those people started the way you were at one point in time, and they just kept working as well. And then eventually, compound interest went to work, if you want to think of it that way. And eventually, they got to that crazy world-class level network. But they didn't start out that way. No one does. So yeah. if you put in the reps, you put in the time, eventually it compounds, and everybody can get to a way better level of connections in their network. It just takes time to let preferential attachment go to work. Yeah, but real quick, I mean, so much you said there is just amazing. 
why is networking important? Why should somebody that has a secure job right now, like they know what they, or, or they, you know, maybe they're in college and they know what they want to do. I, why, why do I need, why do I need connections? Why do I need a network here? Well, if you know, if you know what you're in, if you're in college and you know what you want to do, you, the people who do that probably still don't know who you are. Right. So, right, yeah. so they're right off the bat, but no, I mean, this is one of the big, one of the big misconceptions about networking is it gets pigeonholed. And I mean, I fought this battle and lost it with my publisher is that networking either gets pigeonholed as a topic for job hunters or a topic for salespeople. And, and that's it. Right. And, and fundamentally, what's interesting about networks, the reason it works in those two domains is the same reason it works for everybody. Networks at their very core provide you with information. That information can be in the form of new perspectives, new ideas, people who are willing to challenge your existing ideas. That information can be in the form of introductions to new potential job opportunities. So information about opportunities, information about prospective future clients, whatever it is. But at its core, it's just information. So even if you're happy in your existing job, even if you're well set on this career path, if you think that just putting your head down and just being a good worker for 40 years is going to get you where you want to go, you're, you're wrong because you're ignoring the fact that what you need is a diversity of information, a diversity of new perspectives. And the only way you get that is by paying attention to who you know and who knows you. Yes, sir. Uh, you're speaking my language there. So you, you, we can build a network, though, without approaching people, going to networking events, going to cocktail parties, and approaching random strangers and saying, what do you do? Like, we, we can do it without that. What, what, are, what are some things we do without Yeah, so I'm a... Besides that. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of the question. So what do you do? No, I'm totally sarcastic. <laughs> I can't figure it out. Yeah. I'm not a huge fan of networking events as a whole. There's a whole chapter in front of a friend about this idea of skipping those networking mixers. Um, and this is less a network science study and more just science of human behavior. What we know from actually studying people, like putting little RFID trackers on their name badges and keeping track of who they interact with throughout the course of a networking event. We know that people, when there's an unstructured, open-ended mixer like that, networking event, meetup, whatever you want to call it, people spend more time, most of their time, with people they already know. And if they are talking to people that they don't know, they're spending longer time in conversation with people who are already like them. So go back and think about that goal, right? What's the goal of networking? The number one value it provides is information. If you're talking to people you already know, and you're talking to people who work in the same industry as you, what have you, how much new information are you getting? Not much, right? And this is why a lot of times, if, you're, if, you're, if you worked up the courage to go to that event, right? And you know no one there. Like, first of all, kudos to you for getting the courage to go to that, right? right? Which is awesome. But you probably felt so awkward the whole night because everybody else knew somebody and they were all wanting to interact with that other person. So these events, to me, I actually say, if you don't know anybody, don't go. These events are actually a better, better spent playing to human behavior and getting time to check in with people you already know. Maybe playing wingman and introdu or wingwoman and introducing those people you already know to other people you already know and yes. letting those connections build value that way. But when it comes to new people, it's really not the most effective way to do it. The most effective way is to go, quite frankly, through the friend of a friend, right? It is to go through and do what I call exploring the fringes of your network. You know, you've heard six degrees of separation at some point, I'm sure. Yes. Maybe you played six degrees of Kevin Bacon. I don't know if you're old enough to even know who Kevin Bacon is. I know right? the name. All right. <laughs> I know the name. No, this is a problem. I used to be able to make Kevin Bacon jokes all the time. And then when people stopped laughing, I realized I was getting old. And this was a huge... <laughs> A huge moment of reckoning in my own mortality is that people... But anyway... My so, heart goes out to you, David. 
Well, thank you. That's so kind of you. So all of that is based on this idea that with enough, like the cover of Friend of a Friend, with enough kind of mutual people in common, enough introductions and handshakes, and anybody can work their way to anybody else in the network. And it's true, but I also don't care about that. Like, it's fascinating that you're just five or six introductions away from meeting the president. I know a lot of people who aren't interested in meeting the president right now, right? So whatever, doesn't matter. What I am interested in is just the math of it. If you think about 7.7 people, 7.7 billion people connected by five or six introductions, then how many millions or tens of millions are one introduction away, right? If you think about all of the people that you know, and then if every one of those has just a similar size group of people that they know, we're talking millions or tens of millions. So most of our opportunity and our chances for new information, et cetera, exist right at the fringe of your existing network, right at the fringe of, of what you know about the network that you're a part of. It's that one degree of separation people out. The problem is a lot of us, so even if we know this, a lot of us go about it in a really self-centered way. We might like LinkedIn stalk somebody, you know what I'm talking about? You look them up, you see, oh, we've got this mutual connection. And then you go beg yeah. that person for an introduction. And then that person's like, wait, who are you again? Or, or even if they remember you, they're like, oh yeah, we met at a conference like four years ago and we connected on LinkedIn after and I don't really talk to them mm. anymore. And then we're at a dead end, Right. What's better is to take an open posture and just explore the total fringe by asking questions like, who do you know in blank? With blank being that industry, that city, that, that company that you're trying to get connected to, to anybody at, right? You'll, you'll find your way to the right person eventually, but you're just trying to get that one degree of separation. Asking who do you know in blank of a lot of different people gets you a list of names of possible people and a list of possible avenues that you can go exploring down. And one of them is much more likely to work, right? Just if I have 10 possible conversations I can have, you're much more likely to have success than if I looked up one person on LinkedIn and then I'm trying to chase back and find a path to that one person. So who do you know in blank exploring the fringes of that network and leveraging that six degrees of separation idea, not to go all the way to six, but just one, maybe two. And that's probably all you need in your network in terms of meeting new people. Is this what you refer to as your hidden network? So yes, I, and I probably didn't do a good enough job exploring this in the introduction when, you know, cause I created this term hidden network in the subtitle and, and never bothered to explain it. I consider the hidden network to be the part of the network that you skip over. So yes, the fringe, that one degree of separation out is the hidden network, right? And then the other part of your hidden network are what we call weak or dormant ties. People you know, but you haven't actually even had deep conversations with, or if you have, you haven't talked to them in a really long time. The first, that haven't had deep conversations with, we call that a weak tie. The second, people you know, but you haven't talked to in a while, we call that a dormant tie. And these are both, if you look at how people approach networking, these are the groups of people that people skip over. We start with our close community and the people that we feel comfortable talking to, which usually means some level of familiarity already. And then when that run, when that well runs dry, we just jump to the networking events and the meetups and we pray that the serendipity gods will bless us with the right connection at the right time. And we skip over that hidden part, which are the people that you, that you already know, you just need to reignite that conversation, which is easier than building rapport with a total stranger. Or the people that are one degree of separation, you just have to ask for one introduction and then boom, you've already built rapport with them, which again is easier than that total stranger piece. So both of those, the one degree out and the dormant ties and the weak ties, that as a whole is what I call the hidden network. How do you reignite your conversations with weak and dormant ties? How do you do that? Yeah, so it depends on, yeah, it, it depends on, um, 
It depends on a bunch of different factors. I have two tricks, and I know our, our mutual friend Jordan stole one of these from me. Actually, didn't steal it. We co-invented it live when we were recording one of his podcasts because we were yeah. talking about this phenomenon that former colleagues are former, you know, former coworkers are way more valuable to you in a job search than pretty much anybody else because they've been somewhere else in some other company. They have different information, and so then he asked that same question: How? And we started playing this game. He, I believe, now calls it Gmail Roulette. Yes, right? he, Jordan. By the way, the mutual friend for listeners is Jordan Harbinger in August episode uh, where we talked about networking as well. So yes, he does call it Gmail. We'll, we'll link to it in the show notes so you can oh, check that one. Oh, out as we well. will. Oh, you yeah. like that? Making promises <laughs> for you. Yeah, yeah. I should have said mutual friend Jordan Harbinger because you're also Jordan. So that just creates all sorts uh, yeah, of confusion. Yeah, that's that's why I clarify. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, a lot of people named Jordan know a lot about networking. So. So your, your, your dormant ties in particular, he calls it Gmail roulette. You could, you could totally play that. Or you could tell you, I think I called it cell phone roulette, where you just scroll through your contacts app and you pick somebody, but there are, are better, more comfortable ways, right? That takes a lot of like, uh, I'm trying to think of a polite way to say this. Uh, that takes a lot of willingness to tolerate awkward situations. It takes mm. a lot of courage. Um, there's a bunch of overtly masculine slang terms we could use for what it takes for sure right but we won't we won't this is a kid-friendly show yeah um so you can you can go that route or you can do a couple different things if you already know who you want to reach back out to you can do what i call sort of like a polite version of stalking which is you can check out their social media pages and see what they're broadcasting about their life at the moment so if you, I mean, pretty much anybody that's still on Facebook, right, hasn't left yet or is on LinkedIn or is on Instagram or heck, what's it, TikTok, whatever you yeah, want to call it, right? I don't understand it. I don't understand it either. But that, again, it's sort of like Kevin Bacon. Congratulations, Jordan. You don't understand <laughs> the social network. You're officially old. I know. It's like all people right. seven years younger than me are all on it. It's funny. Anyway, all of these are basically websites where people run newspapers about themselves, right? They publish new announcements about what's going on in their life. And if you take some time to scroll through it, you've identified who you want to reach back out to. You take some time to scroll through that, that newspaper of facts about this person's life. You'll probably find a way to add value or at least some level of congratulations. You'll find something, some peg that you can hang that conversation on moving forward, right? So they're saying that, oh, I just got a new job. So you can send them an email that offers them congratulations or a text message that offers congratulations. You see that they say, hey, we're planning a vacation. We're going to go to Chicago for the weekend. You can go, hey, skip everything but Gino's East and Lou Malnati's because the rest of the pizza places are terrible, right? You can offer that little piece of value. Whatever it is that that is a peg, that, like I said, you can hang that conversation on. Whatever organically just in your mind comes up and goes, oh, I should tell them about X. You can say, hey, I saw on social media. You, I mean, you can only really go about two weeks back. But hey, I saw this on social media and I thought I'd reach out to you and just tell you this, Right. Now, the, the thing that I never shared on, on Jordan's show, or I've, I've shared on a couple different podcasts since then, because this is my other hack that I really like, is if you get through the whole day and you just come up with nothing, you can send a three-sentence email. The three sentences are, you, I mean, you can say, hey, you know, hello, whatever. But after that, three sentences, I was thinking about you today, sentence mm -hmm. one. Two, I hope you're well. Three, no reply needed. Right? Because Ooh. you were thinking about them. That's an honest thing. You were thinking about them that day because you identified them as someone that you wanted to reach back out to. You wish them well because who doesn't like receiving notes that says, hey, I'm thinking about you and I wish you're well, right? Yeah. Like that's just, that's great. And then the no reply needed is like this subtle way of saying, I'm not trying to recruit you to join my network marketing company, <laughs> right? Or I'm not trying to beg you for an introduction to this place where I'm on a job. No reply needed says, I have no agenda. And ironically, people are actually more likely to reply 
when you include it because they sense, I have no agenda. You just wanted to send me some positive vibes, for example. And then you'll end up in that catch-up conversation with that person. Now, the conversation may go nowhere. Like one of the follow-ups I always get is like, all right, what happens if you do that? And they don't give you a job right away. That's not the point, right? The point is to reset what I often call the clock of awkwardness. The point is you've identified someone that you accidentally let too much time go by who is important to you, that relationship is important to you, and you wanna make it less awkward when they need you or when you need them. So you're sending this intermediate message just to ping with them, just to check in with them so that the next time when they actually do think of you and they need something or when you need something down the road, it's not an awkward conversation where you're having to reignite it. It's just another friend that you're asking something from or just another friend that you're giving something to yes now this is this might be my own problem and i i've sort of like you know diagnosed this uh the problem that i run into a lot of the times when people do reply they're like let's get coffee let's get on a phone call let me pick your brain and i'm like oh why did i reach out to this person so is the problem that i'm reaching that you should only be reaching out to people that maybe you would be willing to do that stuff with or or what? Like, what is the... I mean, yeah, if you're, if you're reaching back out to a taker just because some guy on a podcast said that you should reach back out to everybody, that's probably the wrong message, right? There are, there are certain people who you haven't talked to in a while for a very good reason, right? Yes. And we're not talking about those people. We're talking about the people you care about, the people you want to maintain a deliberate relationship. It's not everyone, right? Um, in my mind, I actually refer to this sometimes. I don't know. I don't know how often I've shared this story. I often default to a joke that my wife and I use called uh, short list, long list. So we um, were fairly deliberate people. So when we had kids, we got really busy. I'm a, I'm a writer. I travel for speaking all the time. She's an ER doctor. We now have two kids. Thankfully, they're both in school, but for the first five years of their life, they weren't, right? So things got busy and we found ourselves, we kept kicking ourselves that certain friends of ours, we just never had time to go hang out with. Like when you're, when you're single, you can hang out with a ton of different people. When you're married and childless, you still hang out with lots of different couple friends. And then you have kids and like it gets really hard really fast. So what we did was we made a list of all of the sort of relationships that we cared about keeping up with, mostly the couple relationships, individual, that's our own deal. But what other families do we like to be around and interacting with and what have you? Uh, and quite frankly, we ranked them, right? And we ranked them, not necessarily like we sweated who was number five and who was number six, but we took some of them and we put them on the short list. And we said, these are the deliberate people that we want to make sure that we're interacting with every quarter or so that we're having over for dinner or they invite us or we go out to a movie or something. We want to make sure that we talk to these people. And these are the people that we're giving ourselves permission to feel guilty about if we haven't talked to them in a while. Everybody else is on the long list. And the long list is the, you know what? The internet works both ways. The telephone works both ways. If they come to us, we love them. We'll hang out with them. But we're not going to keep kicking ourselves, feeling bad about reaching back out to those people. They're on the long list. So I think you probably have to do this with your professional relationships too. There are certain people that you know you want to get closer to, or you just know that you don't want to let that relationship fall by the wayside. This is a trick for them. For everybody else... The internet works both ways. They could reach out to you as well. And I'm sure you would be welcoming and, and creating value for them. But these are not the people that you're going to be deliberate about maintaining those relationships with. Certainly. I want to go back to the question, what do you do? <laughs> oh, yeah, because uh, you said I hate it. Yes. I, I, I said I, I hated it when well, you said I, it. I hate it, too. I was. I actually host. I've, I've been hosting a networking event for the past uh, two months now. Uh, you know, it's, a, it's just a LinkedIn local, like one of those, one of those yeah. events. And so, however, it's you know, it's not a curated event. And so you get those people 
all the time that are like like literally two days ago like hi i'm i'm so and so oh i do credit restoration here's my card uh what do you do and i'm like oh i don't want to and i made a graceful exit because i had other people in the circle as well but it was like it's like, uh, you know, so, so what's an alternative yeah. to what do you do? Yeah. So, so some of this, and we got to back up. Some of this is the yeah. fault of very well-meaning programs. I'm not going to name names, but networking programs and systems that have trained people to show up at these events looking to get right. Some of them even say like, you've got to come with a referral for somebody else and all that, which I don't even know how you do. Cause you have, but anyway, um, that's a whole, those are other monologues. The, mm. the problem with the, what do you do question is that most of the time when people are in a work-related networking event, meetup, what have you, e- even if they're just in like a training class at their company and there's a new person, right? Most of the time when we're to work-related, we think that the right thing to do is to break the ice with work-related questions. And so the easiest one is, so what do you do, right? And it's it's a fair question, right? Even if you're meeting someone in a personal capacity, what do you do is, is a fair question because it's people are spending 40-some hours of their life doing it. But it's not a very good question for understanding the whole person, right? Because especially at a work networking event, a LinkedIn local, where obviously since LinkedIn's associated, work is going to be the purpose we're there, as opposed to a Facebook meetup for runner, like a runner's group or something like that. Um, a question like, what do you do, signals that you want to keep the conversation about work. And, and that's a problem. The, the first is that it doesn't allow you to explore and get to know the other person and be um, interested in them, which is the number one way to come off as interesting in a conversation, by the way. It's not to have a perfect elevator pitch. It's to be genuinely interested in the other person by asking questions about the whole person, every facet of that person. Yeah. The other thing is that when you're actually looking to build a relationship with somebody, the best thing you can do in the moment in that room is to build what we call an uncommon commonality, something that you two have in common that nobody else uh, in the room has in common or that, or that not a lot of people in the room has in common. And you immediately create a little bond over that. The, the fancy term for this, by the way, is multiplexity, which is a fancy way of saying when you're networked into someone, and you have different contexts for connection, different ways you can take the conversation, but also different ways you can follow up down the road. You end up building a deeper relationship stronger with them. And, and that's the goal. And a question like, what do you do? That doesn't do it because then the conversation is just about work and you're not finding other stuff. Right. So for example, you and I, I had a podcast for a long time. Now I do a daily video. You do a podcast. We were talking, what do you do? And we just talked about podcasting. I never would have found out, which I did by following you on your Instagram, that you are a cheerleader or were a cheerleader for oh, wow. Florida Gulf Coast University. You did that. I noticed that right <laughs> off the bat, not because I was a cheerleader, but because I married a cheerleader. I actually tried out for the cheerleading Wait. team, but I didn't make it because I wow. have a terrible ability to do a toss to hands. I was just awful at it. Oh man. And there's no purpose for a guy if you can't do a toss to hands. There's nothing for you to do it's, and but it's like come on they they <coughs> not they knocked you for not being able to do it on day one are you kidding me yeah See, i mean you got it yeah, took you got, me months you got, all right but anyway, maybe my place is hard at yours i don't know but anyway Probably. so we have that's an uncommon commonality most people on the show are like i don't even know what a toss to hands is but it sounds dirty, i know <laughs> right um so we have that uncommon commonality because we saw but it, it, if you just ask what do you do if we'd spent the whole conversation pre-show or at post-show talking about podcasting and this and that like It'd be helpful to you and to me, but it would only have one, uh, we'd only have that one thing in common. We wouldn't end up having a, a deeper relationship or a better opinion of each other, even at a bare minimum after the fact. So you want to find those uncommon commonalities. 
And a question like, what do you do? It just doesn't do that. So I encourage people to ask different questions like, uh, what do you do for fun? Where did you grow up? Uh, what are you excited about right now? Or what are you looking forward to? My absolute favorite question, because I'm a super nerd, you can probably tell because you got a video feed and you're looking at my bookshelf full of nerdy stuff. Yeah. Um, my favorite question to ask is, who's your favorite superhero? Oh, man. Um, because A, if you're a nerd, like it gets people excited. But even people who aren't, in an age where like the billion dollar films are all Marvel comics, everybody's got a favorite superhero. And so when you ask who's your favorite superhero, it's not about their answer. It's about the follow-up when you ask why. And they tell you a story about why that character resonates with them. And then you learn about them because now you know why that character resonates with them. And by the way, this works even when it doesn't because almost everybody has a favorite superhero. And those people who don't, they still have a reason why they hate superheroes. Yeah. And you can still ask the why question and you can still learn a lot about them. It's a bold question. It forces you to essentially drop, uh, you know, I, I feel like, you have to drop thinking uh, the, the I care what others think about me uh, mask or so to say. Well, only uh, if your favorite superhero is Green Lantern. Then you probably <laughs> have to stop caring what others think about you. Yeah, but I ask, uh, I'll ask, you know, in a more professional setting, like, you know, what, it, maybe it's not, it's not as I'm I'm judging no, myself. Question. I'm we'll judging myself. Analyze it later. Now that, now that you've given me yours, but I'll ask like, you know, what's new and exciting in your world or like in a less professional style, I'm literally like, uh, what is the most exciting thing that happened to you today? Uh, and, and, and yes, I did find that commonality. I saw in your Facebook profile that you used to live in, uh, you're from Philadelphia as am I. And so I was going to ask you, what is the most exciting thing that happened to you today? But I saw that commonality, like, a second before you popped up here, before we got on this. And I was like, oh, I got to talk about, I got I to ask him about that. Yeah, so, so there you go. Uh, and yeah, we, yeah. we had a whole conversation about uh, weather. <laughs> and what we didn't talk about were tasty cakes uh, uh, and, no, yeah. and Wawa. Uh, but, mm, you know, Wawa. actually, you got Wawa in Florida too, don't you? I'm jealous. It, it has migrated. It's it's made its way <sighs> down. so here. lucky. Do they still have rectangular soft pretzels at the Wawa in Florida I, too? I will say, I've not been to a Wawa in Florida. I just heard a long time ago that oh, it's not nearly it. as good as oh, the ones up north. And yeah. I was like, I don't know. I just never ventured out to explore one myself. Plus, I'm a super healthy guy. So, like, you know. You can, I, <laughs> no, you can't. You really can't. No, That's you can't. You can't. That's good There's another level right, of so, health, and I'm, like, so, on that level. So, your, your, your question, yeah. you know, what's the most – what do you accept? That, that's all fine, right? The idea is that it's an open-ended question that – if I'm on the receiving end, I can answer with a work-related thing if I want to, but I could also tell you that like, oh, my kid just got his report card, or I could tell you they just opened a Wawa around the corner, yeah. right? Whatever, whatever I can tell you, you're, you're giving the, the ball to me and letting me run the play that I want to run, which is fine. Um, so that is still a great question. Whichever way is kind of authentic, right? You don't, you don't literally have to carbon copy me and ask what excites you right now. Cause that, if, if you, if you're not the right type of person, that can actually sound kind of weird. Yeah. Um, it, however it's authentic and however it kind of flows off your tongue, that's better. Um, but the idea is to make it open-ended, allow the other person to answer in a variety of different domains. And the odds are they're going to answer with something other than work because the numbers are pretty clear. Only about 20% of people are actively engaged in their jobs. So eight out of 10 people didn't want to talk about work anyway. So when you ask that open-ended question, eight out of 10 of them are going to take it off in some other direction where you'll find an uncommon commonality anyway. Wow. That's an interesting statistic. So <laughs> tell me, David, your friends make you fat. Is that true? 
Your fr- yes, um, your friends make you fat, and so do their friends, and so do their friends. Oh. So the data from this is really, really interesting. So probably the the nerdiest, deepest study um, that's been done on social networks is two researchers, Nicholas Christakis and James Fowler. And what they did is they used, you're into health, they used the Framingham Heart Study, which is the pinnacle study about heart disease and the relationship between diet and exercise and cholesterol uh, and your likelihood of having a heart attack and all that. That was that was run by basically following the town of Framingham, Massachusetts. Most of the residents of that town uh, were part of this study, got regular health checkups, had these really immersive um, inventories done that included their social relationships. And so what Christakis and Fowler did was they were able to use that data, which was supposed to be about heart attacks, and actually construct a social network of the whole town because everybody listed their closest friends and all of that sort of thing. And what they found is that there really is, the study ran, is still running actually, but they looked at the first 30 years of data. And what they found is that if you list in your closest group of people, people who are, um, are obese, score high, score, I don't know what the number on the body mass index is, but score as obese or overweight or obese on the body mass index, over time, you're, you're more likely to become obese as well. The weirdest thing though, is that even if your friends are, are fit, but their friends are obese, there is still an influence. And th- even three degrees out, so your friend of a friend of a friend still has an influence over time on your obesity level. We've tried a bunch of different ways to explain this and none of them explain it perfectly. Like we're still doing this research and still trying to figure it out. The most, um, the best possible example is that it's about social norms, that we take our cues about behavior, we take our cues about how much to eat or how often we should exercise, et cetera, off the people around us. And over time, that shapes our behavior. And if we're taking our cues off the people around us, well, they're taking it off the people around them. And so that's the outer ring and the outer, outer ring. So yes, your friends make you fat. Your friends are also what make it likely that you will smoke or I guess now vape, right? So we saw it with adoption and cessation of smoke. I think it's cessation, stopping smoking. We saw all of that kind of influence. We also see it even in happiness that your friends, if your friends are, are satisfied with their life, you're more likely to report that you're satisfied with your life. And even if your friend of a friend of a friend is happy with her life, you're about 6% more likely to say that you're happy with yours, which is 6% doesn't sound like a big deal. But one of my favorite interesting statistics, to use your term, is that the average American, if I gave them a $10,000 raise, would only report about a 2% increase in their happiness, right? So we're buying $30,000 of happiness just by paying attention to the people that are around us and who we're actually going to spend our time with. $30,000 $30,000 of happiness. That's a fun way to look at it. <laughs> uh, and I like your social norms theory. I think it's a good theory slash hypothesis that yeah. I, 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 t- I buy into that one. Well, we know, so we know, for example, that like emotional contagion is a very real thing. Um, we see it and, and social contagion in terms of adoption of like psychoses is a very real thing. So norms doesn't explain every element of this, what Chris Agnes and Fowler call it the three degrees of influence. But I think on the diet one specifically, norms is what's going on there. Yeah. I think on the happiness and smoking, one, there's smoking. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, on the happiness one, that might be a bit of an emotional contagion. And like I said, it, it it's every everything that we yeah. study ends up having a different level of influence and possibly a different explanation. But the, the big lesson is, right, if it's that complicated to explain, 
imagine what's going on, like how much the world around you is influencing you in ways you don't know. Uh-huh. And so all the more reason to be deliberate about the people that are in that network around you and who you're choosing to spend time with and paying attention to who their friends are too, right? And by the way, I mean, ask any parent, right? As soon as your kids are old enough to go off to school, what's the big thing that you're interested in? Who are their friends? And and what are, tell me about their friend's family. And I want to know what type of person they are because that's going to shape who my kid is going to become more than I can at that point because they're they're spending all that time in school. I want to know about that, right? Parents, we know this. We don't apply it to ourselves a lot of times, which is a shame. My theory for the happiness being infectious thing is I, I thought of Vanessa Van Edwards' TED Talk. Uh, it's pretty much like you are infectious. And it's a really good TED Talk. She was on the podcast episode 100. 13 jordanparis.com slash ep1 we'll link that in the show notes too well just saying making promises okay (laughs) okay i got i'm writing that down but uh that's 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 my theory there her her ted talk could it could possibly explain how uh the happiness is essentially transferred from our friends of our friends and 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 so on you know what i mean yeah so we, just, we definitely know that's true. It's, it's definitely true in, in individual interactions. Like we yeah. know that if you and I have a pleasant interaction, your next interaction, if, if I'm polite to you, you're going to be more polite in your next interaction, et cetera. Um, I mean, I guess it, it also explains it because the in, I shouldn't say the influence is the same. It's not like your friend of a friend of a friend has the same influence that your closest friends have on you. The degree of it, or as, as the degree goes out, the percentage of, of your emotional state that they affect goes down, right? So the level of change goes down. So yeah, it could be sort of a a ripple effect and it's dampening as it goes out because of those um, interactions. Um, Overall, I mean, emotional contagion and social contagion as a whole is just fascinating, right? There's probably a whole other book there too. So we'll start with Vanessa's research, but I bet there's more answers out there that I gotta gotta go be nerdy and find out. Certainly. So let's talk about the power of introductions Uh, this can have a i believe making introductions can have a powerful network effect and we're going to get into double opt-in intros in a second but let's explain first why are making introductions powerful yeah so um we we already is (laughs) it's fine (laughs) so we already we already talked a bit about um the the fringes of our network the one degree of separation out right and obviously, you got to get connected to that person. I mean, I guess you could, if you wanted to get connected to a person that's one degree of separation out that you don't already know, theoretically, you could follow a person that you two have in common around until they organically run into that person and then you introduce yourself. But it's probably going to come through an introduction. And it's better if it comes through an introduction because it, at least in a social dynamic, every introduction is also a recommendation. Every introduction is also a recommendation of those people to each other. So the term that we use a lot of times to talk about the value that's lying in a network is a term called social capital. And when I introduce you to someone, I am spending my social capital on you and I'm trusting that I'm going to get a good return on investment because the making of that connection will be so beneficial for both of you that I end up looking great, right? There are times in real life, and I had just had to send an email like this uh, last week. There are times where you're spending social capital and you know that that person can't return it, but you know that like you have enough of it. I don't want to say they owe you a favor, but you know you've given enough to that relationship where they'll, they'll do it. Or you know that like just over time, because you're seen as a giver, you can spend it. So I had a situation actually with a former student of mine 
mind when I was a full-time business school professor, moved to Michigan, was asking me who I sort of knew. He was like two years out from school, knew nobody in Michigan, right? And so I, I basically sent a couple different introduction emails to people and said, look, there is, there's nothing for you to gain from meeting this person, but it would mean mm -hmm. a lot to me if you could help them get settled in the Detroit area because I'm, you know, they don't have any other connections, right? That's still me spending my social capital on them. I hope that long-term it'll build yes. off me and et cetera. But the point is I, I built that level of social capital yeah. where I could ask that over time. So every introduction is also a recommendation. And then if you are the one being introduced, right, you end up better off because you are now a, almost like a mantle, like a, a coat, like a big you know, mantle is a weird biblical term that I just threw out there, but almost, almost <laughs> like a suit coat. Like you're putting on that person's uniform as you go meet that person because you're, you have that reputation, that person's reputation on your shoulders, which means A, don't blow it, but B, their reputation is going to help you build rapport with that other person. Jordan already said you're a great person, so I'm going to give you even more than the benefit of the doubt when I meet you because I trust Jordan, right? So you want that introduction. And also on the, on the flip side of it, you want to be giving introductions often. It's one of the simplest ways to create value for the network that's around you. The fancy term in network science is do you make it more resilient when everybody is connected. Wow. But you just want to be providing that value because let's face it, you're at that, you're at that LinkedIn local, right? You found that guy who does whatever you said, right? You, the likelihood that you have something of value to offer that person in the moment is very, very small. But the likelihood that you know somebody who could provide you that benefit is really, really high, right? So the easiest way to provide value to a lot of new people that we meet is not by offering them information or, or what have you. It's actually by making another introduction to somebody else in the community so they can get a little further tied in. So yeah. you want to be on the giving end of introductions and you want to be on the receiving end of introductions when you go about navigating through this network. You explained it thoroughly and perfectly. Now... Let's go over the missteps here. If we don't use a double opt-in introduction, and we will get to what exactly that is, but yeah. what happens when you don't use that? Do you have an instance from your life where it is blown up in your face? Yeah. So if you think about social capital as like a dollar bill, and you're spending that dollar bill making the introduction... If you mess this up, double opt-in introduction is one of the ways you do it. You make an introduction that's totally worthless, both to the other person and to you, you might as well have lit that dollar bill on fire, right? Because that's what happened to your social capital. Um, I learned this the hard way in my own personal life. I got out there, it was the first time, I, I, I actually, this is funny that we're talking about this. I built my network through podcasting, not to sound hipster, but I was podcasting before it was cool. Um, I started in 2010. I stopped in 2018, I think. Maybe I started in 2009. Whatever. I did it for eight years. It's a long time. Yeah. And it was it was a way to meet new people, a way to to grow my own individual network, a way to work my way in because I interviewed the authors that I aspired to be like so that I could learn about them, eventually start figuring out who their agent is, what publishing house they're with. I, I networked my way into that publishing world. Through that podcasting domain. Reminds me of myself. I Isn't that weird? Jeez. <laughs> and, uh, and when, after my first book came out, I met a, a whole lot more people. You probably found this in your life too. Once the first one's out, it's like way easier to meet other authors and, and what have you. I see it over your uh, your left shoulder. So I already oh, know. Yes. Um, once it's out there. So... <clears throat> I was super excited doing the whole networker thing, just trying to help other people. Because I also believe that like when you when you get some level of success, you send the ladder back down, you send the elevator back down, you help other people. I agree. And so I fired off this random email 
um, I don't even remember who I was connecting. I, I know specifically who I was introducing this person too, but I don't remember who the person was. Um, and I know who I was interested to because I have a very bad memory of his response, which was basically not cool. Don't be sending my personal information out without asking me first. Right? So then I was like, okay, I clearly screwed something up. You can't just put two people's email address in a, in a new message and say, so-and-so meet so-and-so. I think you two would be, you would benefit from connecting with each other, oh, send yeah. and be done. Right. You clearly can't do that. You end up making the whole situation more awkward yep. for, for other people. In my defense, I was younger than you when I did this. Right. So, <laughs> so that then led me down the throat of like, all right, what's the right way to do it? And that is when we got into that double opt-in introduction. Um, and the double opt-in introduction, if you think about it, if you know anything about email marketing or you've ever signed up for a newsletter, you probably had double opt-in happen to you in email, which is where you give your email address on one page and then they send you an email address and just says, confirm that you actually asked for this, right? This is like when, when I was a kid, the whole, the whole joke used to be to crank call pizza places and order a pizza for delivery to somebody else's house. This is like, that's a single opt-in. Pizza places got wise and started calling the number of the actual house and saying, did you really just order 47 pizzas, right? Email does the same thing. Email's like, did you really just sign up for this newsletter list or is somebody pranking you by running you around and signing you up for random email lists, right? That's where double opt-in came from. It works the same way in, in, in human relationships. When you're interacting with somebody and you make a, first of all, you shouldn't make a promise to introduce them to anybody, but when you realize that they would benefit from getting connected to somebody you already know, you make a promise to see if you can make that connection. That's the first opt-in. They're interested in meeting that person that you know, and you've made the promise to say, I'll go ask them. So then you go ask them. That's the second opt-in, right? And only after you explain, here's who I want to get you connected with and why. So in my situation, right, going to those friends of mine that live in Detroit and say, here's this kid I, I would like you to meet. In this case, I don't have a beneficial thing for you, um, but I, I would appreciate it. And I built enough social capital to feel comfortable asking for, for this favor, right? I'm still asking for them to opt in before I actually send the introduction message. Yeah. It does a couple different things. Uh, the biggest one is that, again, nobody is blindsided by the introduction. It also lets both, both people know kind of what's in it for them and what they're, what's expected of them before that initial one is made. But even I've learned over time, just the double opt-in introduction is still not sufficient. The last thing you need to do when you actually go connect those two people is you need to make it explicitly clear whose job it is to go next. We've all been on the receiving end of those yeah. introductions where they just sign off and you're like, all right, do I reply? Do I wait 24 hours? Do I, am I in the power position where the other person has to reply and I'll just yeah. let it sit in my email box until then? Don't, don't do that. Even if it's, even if it's not an email one, like make it explicitly clear whose job it is to follow up. And this can be really simple. This can be a, a little line at the bottom that just says, Hey Jordan, could you follow up with some dates and times that might work for a chat? Right? Just a little thing like that so it's very clear to both people who's clicking reply or who is sending the next text or, or what have you. Make it clear who speaks next so that the whole thing, you just took all this time to make sure the introduction is going to go off without a hitch. And if you don't make it clear who's going next, you're running right into that hitch again. Excellent. And, and me being on the receiving end of so many unwanted introductions, I like all the time I am looped in with between two people that I don't even know like like the the person making the introduction like I don't even know who they are like it, it happens a lot on 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 LinkedIn like a group they'll make a group message and it's like 
the the person introducing me like you know like oh i thought you guys would be great to uh you guys should really chat and and i'm just like wait who are you and who are you and why should we chat and it's just like it's like uh, and then the person will leave the conversation the person who made the intro they'll leave the conversation i'm like (laughs) and again to bring to bring the whole thing full circle like you're mad at those people, but I, I nowadays I feel sorry for those people because what they did was they read a book, they read a networking advice book by somebody with a huge network that's built a ton of social capital over time. And that person said, here's how I do it. And then they're just, they're just trying to emulate that person, but they don't have the existing network. They don't have the social capital. They don't have the reputation. So they can't make the same moves. And so that's the thing we got to respect. Look, I pretty much every networking book that, that's out there, I have a copy of and I enjoy, but I read them as a sample size of one. It's one person and I might be able to apply some of it to my life, but a lot of it's not going to apply. And that's the effect that most people should take. And not, not to make like a huge plug for like, please go out and buy friend of a friend, but that's not the approach we wanted to take in friend of a friend. We just wanted to say, here's how networks work. And I'll get a little bit prescriptive, but it's up to you to figure out what question you want to ask when you meet someone. It's up to you to figure out when you have enough social capital to ask yes. for that. We're just trying to get the principles in place. You figure out how to turn those principles into a plan. Well, it's exactly your point that the person read the, read the book and like, you know, and try to emulate it. Uh, the one person who did this to me about a month ago, his headline was networking expert. And I said, and I said, Oh, Oh really? <laughs> uh, but this is a huge plug to go by friend of a friend because gosh, what a, what a great, the, you are a master of your craft, a brilliant <laughs> practitioner, a brilliant presenter, even your, uh, you're a TED talk. You're an amazing presenter there. And, and it is sometimes like people are very good speakers on the stage because that's, you know, rehearsed, but sometimes, uh, uh, right. And it should be, uh, but you know, come on a podcast and it might be a little bit different, but even here, like you're a brilliant presenter and speaker. I, uh, I so enjoyed, uh, talking with you today. We just, we're ha- we had a lot of fun. And so friend of a friend, get the book on Amazon, highly endorse and David dot come. David, thank you so much for spending this great time with me today. You're the man. Yeah. Oh no. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been great. Excellent. So my final question, you thought it was over. Uh, my, <laughs> my final question is uh, if you could teach a course at university, I know you, I understand you're a professor. I understand that. But if you could design your own course, what would it be? Ah, uh, so that's really hard. So I am a professor. I still have an appointment. Uh, I'll say, I'll tell you what, I, I'll say this. I um, taught a bunch of different courses, many of which were part of a degree plan that I didn't build, right, and, and all of that. But when I, when I left and moved into a semi-permanent sabbatical, I kept one course. I teach one course a year, and it's on creative thinking, specifically in business. And the reason that I teach it is that most of the education system is designed to teach you a right answer. And I think everybody needs a course that teaches them to ask the right questions. And that's the whole goal of the course. Oh, I highly endorse that. David, I don't hate me, but can I ask you one more question? <laughs> sure, I just thought of this. It. I just thought of this because you were a podcaster for eight years. I'm a podcaster. A gigantic portion, uh, a disproportionate amount of my listeners are podcast hosts. How would you recommend podcast hosts better continue the relationship with their guests? Like, how would you do it? And I imagine you converted a lot of your guests to friends. What was your what was your method there? Is it a lot of what we discussed today? Or is there anything different here? 
So a lot of this depends on what your goals for a podcast or really any kind of digital media, what your goals are. Are they long-term or are they short-term? Are you trying to use a podcast to build a network or are you trying to use it to build an audience? If you're trying to build, use it to build an audience, that's fine. But what you're probably going to do is chase down um, the biggest names that you can get on the show about really exciting subjects. Uh, and, and then you'll do the interview and then you'll do that follow-up email where you say, hey, this show's live and you can click this link and I made this thing that you can share on Instagram and what have you. And then the hope is they share it and then some of their audience comes to you and it compounds over time. And that's great. And that's a great way to build an audience. You gotta, you gotta finesse it to not be that super annoying person. <laughs> But that's a great way to build an audience. If you're looking to build a network, then the tactic is a little bit different. Mm. It's less about asking in the short term, can you follow up, right? A lot of people, especially if they're really influential and your show's not all that big, a lot of people think that they're doing you a favor by being on the show. So mm. like you're already one in the can and then you're asking them to share it. Now that's two favors you're asking and you haven't done much for them. So what I would do is actually not share it so much, right? I would still promote the show on social media, tag them. They could click retreat if they want to, but you're not going to ask for a second share. No. What you are going to share is after the show goes live and you start hearing good things from your audience, pass that along. When somebody says, Hey, Jordan, I heard your interview with Vanessa Van Edwards and she said to do this and I did it. And this is what happened. Click forward and send that email to Vanessa or take a screenshot and send that out. Ah. Let them know the ways that your audience benefited from them. And then you're doing that follow-up thing like we were talking about with Weak and Dormant Ties, but you're doing it in a way that's showing so much gratitude for what they already gave you that you're building social capital over time. So I would do that. I would also like, we, we have this weird tendency, especially authors, right? We write a book every two to four years. We have yeah. this thing of like, oh, where you were just on the show. So I don't have you back on again, et cetera. But like, but I want to talk to you again because I want to build a relationship. So what do I do? A lot of us never consider that like the technology exists to run a panel now. Like you could do like once a quarter, you could have, let's say me and Jordan and Vanessa all on one panel thing about net. We're just going to talk Whoa. about professional relationships, right? <laughs> that would be For, cool. <laughs> first of all, that's something that nobody does, right? Because everybody does this one-on-one -on -one interview format. Um, but the other thing is that it's a way to get, reach back to the same guests and have them on within like one year. If that's your goal is to reach out to them every year, it's another way to have them on. So you got to get creative with that format as well, you can do stuff like that. But again, that's a that's like a I'm big idea. <laughs> the, li the little practical thing you can do is make sure you're not asking them to share your show. Instead, share with them how your show is interacting, inter impacting the audience that you already have. Yes, Golden, you've, oh my God, that is amazing. I, it's gonna be so helpful for so many people and myself too. So <laughs> David Burkus, you are the man. Thank you very much, appreciate you. Oh, thank you so much for having me. There you have it, my friends. This has been another episode of Growth Mindset University, the podcast. Now, if you enjoyed this one today, all I ask is that you share it out to your friends, family, etc., on your Instagram story and tag me and our guest today. And don't forget to message our guest as well so that you build your network as you listen and learn with this podcast. And if you really believe that hearing the message of growth is important to the world and you want to help others find our show and you're not satisfied with just taking a screenshot and sharing this on your Instagram story, well, I've got good news for you. You can go the extra mile in helping spread this message of growth. You can leave us an honest rating and review in Apple Podcasts. We have over 200 ratings right now and it has made a gigantic difference 
for this show, not only helping people find the show, but getting awesome guests. Thank you all so very much. And until next time, my friends, make every day count. Live to learn and grow to give.